Have you noticed how language changes? It evolves. Wicked used to mean bad. Literally, as in Wayne Rooney was literally on fire, literally doesn't mean that anymore. Cute originally meant perceptive and shrewd. It now means sweet. Sweet now means cool. Cool is nothing to do with temperature. Language changes. Language sometimes evolves in order to bring about social change. Euthanasia, assisted homicide, became assisted suicide, became assisted dying, became easeful death, became assessing death with dignity. Ending an unwanted, unwelcome pregnancy started with compassion. Let's take it from the back streets. Let's care for the well-being of the mother. Let's provide the legal way of ending a pregnancy where complications could jeopardize the health of the mother. Then language evolved. It actually became more of a, uh, a woman's right to choose. Stronger feminist agenda. But actually now... Language has shifted again. It's morphed. It's actually become more about social responsibility. Do you really have the means to bring up this child? If you're not going to pay for it, who else is going to pay for it? Should you be having a disabled child? What kind of person are you for choosing to bring a disabled baby into the world? You only bring this baby into the world or this child into the world if you want it and if you are ready for it. And then maybe a more personal response is how could I have this child and give it away like an adoption knowing that this child will grow up knowing I rejected it. How will that make me feel? In our culture, sex is predominantly seen as a recreational, not a procreational activity. The average age for first-time sex in the UK is 15, 16 in girls. The average age now in the UK for having a baby is 30. So there's a 15-year gulf which requires actually a, a very liberal abortion policy. Uh, latest figures, 2013, England and Wales, 185,000 pregnancies, a quarter of all pregnancies ended in termination. It's easier, sometimes more convenient, more acceptable, more responsible, why ending a pregnancy is chosen over birth. What's our response? What's our response as Christians. There's two churches close by here. I know both of them. I know both of their leaders. One of the churches stands outside a clinic in Brighton waving the placards accusing the clinic of murder. The other is doing all it can to reach across into the lives of very distressed future mothers trying to present to them alternatives. Both feel that they're being called by God. 
both reacting and responding in very different ways. How do we respond? See, they're both equally passionate. See, as a church for everyone, it's in our culture, it's in our blood, who we are to do all we can, all we can to offer love and support. I'm determined that we look to remove secret shame and let people see the grace and forgiveness of God. I want people to have grace encounters. I want people to understand the grace and the mercy and the kindness of God. Why? Because I believe that no sin, including termination, is beyond God's grace. There's a permanent solution, full forgiveness in Jesus. I also want us to be in a position where we not only talk about forgiveness, but actually can offer genuine, real alternatives. In the US, an organization, very pro-life organization, has this as kind of their strapline. Let's not look to make abortion illegal, but let's look to make it unthinkable. But in order for it to become unthinkable, we need to be providing a real alternative. We need to change the language in order to bring about social change. But in in order to do this, we need to establish a foundation as to why. Why is it important to be providing an alternative? Why should we get involved? And that really comes down to the question of, is the unborn child or the unborn embryo or the unborn fetus, is it worth it? Do we look to biology and ethics for the answer, or do we look to the Bible? A couple of weeks ago, when mentioning to someone that this is a topic we're going to be talking about, I noticed how language makes all the difference. Uh, A young mother in Eastbourne said when she was pregnant, up to the age of 24 weeks, her midwife refused to call the unborn child a baby. As soon as, it went 20, as soon as she went 24 weeks, the fetus became a baby and the language changed. So at what point does a person become a person? You see, an embryo might go to a fetus, might come to a fetus to a baby. But at what point does that embryo, fetus, baby become a person? Is it kind of when the sperm meets egg? Is it at 12 weeks when the baby's fully formed? Is it at 24 weeks? Is it at birth? Is it when fertilization takes place within 24 hours of intercourse? Is it when they have potential to live outside the human body? Uh, Currently, it's set at 24 weeks. Is it when they can live independently outside the human body, which is anything up to 24 years? Or is it when they have the ability or the capacity to reason and to think, something called Trey X? Now, some people in that definition never have the ability or the capacity to reason and think. So, therefore, are they a non-person? Someone with a disability, someone with dementia, looking at this next week. Do they become a non-person? So, massive implications, incredibly complicated, highly emotive, so it's important that we turn from biology and turn towards the Bible because we want the Bible to be the authority of how I live as a citizen. But people say, but the Bible, how can you go to the Bible? That was written at a time which was pre-scientific. It was written at a time with limited knowledge of the world and the universe. You can't have the Bible to define on these issues. I agree, there is nothing in the Bible about IVF treatment. How 65-year-old German teachers can have quadruplets. There's nothing in the Bible about that. Yesterday's headlines. Two weeks ago, grandma is taking to high court so she can 
unfreeze her dead daughter's eggs so she can have her own grandchildren. Nothing in the Bible about that. But there's historical principles in the worldview that makes it relevant today, even if there's no specific verses. See, the Bible is God's big story. Big story of creation and the fall and the redemption and the future. Fallen from something and saved for something. See, our journey, where we are right now, actually goes back to the beginning, the creation story. So in the first seven days of creation, according to the Bible, not according to Darwin, there are two major peaks. Okay, the creation of humankind, humanity, is God's pinnacle of creation. And the second peak was the introduction of something called the Sabbath, the day of rest. Why was that so important? Because that was ultimately God's supreme goal in life, that we would find our rest and our recovery and our recreation in him. Ultimately, that's going to be fulfilled. Two peaks. Creation of humanity and the introduction of the Sabbath. Genesis chapter 1, the right at the beginning, is this biblical narrative of the origin of species, his work of creation, he's the designer. We look at the big picture, the overview of what went on, and then we look at the minute detail and we pick it up in, in a song, a psalm that says this, for you formed me in my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb, I praise you for I am fearfully and I am wonderfully made. Now, if we lose sight of the concept that the idea that we are designed and made by God, we strike at the very heart of a biblical understanding of what it is to be a human. It's really important. See, it's not a Darwin debate. This is accepting our biblical foundation that God has made us, and we're part of his plan, we're part of his purposes, and actually we're part of his design. So in Genesis chapter 1, then God said, let us make man in our image, After our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. First point, we're made in God's image. We are God-like beings. Secondly, we're called by God to rule over the rest of creation in place of God. We are his image bearers and we are his representatives on earth. Why? In order to reveal the character of who God is to the rest of creation. To bring life, to populate the earth with the image of God, bring about order. Why is that important? As we look at this, this is is foundational. As we look at the importance of life, being made in his image, we are in him. We are in community. We're in family. We are invaluable. So the first point that we're made in God's image. Now, secular, the secular society says the exact opposite. But biblically, we're not an individual. We're not self-explanatory. We're not independent. We're not self-governing. We are a reflection of another. We're made in the image of another. If you travel into London, some of you do it regularly, you, you go down onto the underground, and do you have an underground map, and you look at all these little squiggly lines, red-colored lines, and black lines, and green lines, and yellow lines, and blue lines, and they all kind of intersect. What is that? It's the map of the underground. But that, is, that is, is a reflection. It's a map of another reality. Our DNA that is within us, the human genome, is like a map that points to another reality, God. Therefore, our value and our dignity doesn't come from ourselves, our own identity actually comes from God, whose image we now bear. 
Now, if this is true, and we have genuine choice, and we have relative freedom and a degree of independence, my life is not entirely my life to do what I please. I'm ultimately representing another and ultimately, my meaning in life can only be found in relationship with another, ultimately with God. See, secular, I can't say that word, yeah. society in which we're living in, one of liberal individualization, says it's up to you. It's kind of a postmodern thinking. It's all down to you as an individual. It's your choice, it's your right, which is why that is so heavily influencing the euthanasia debate. But biblical citizenship says the opposite. You don't live for yourself, you live to represent another. So Job said this, you clothed me with skin and flesh. You knit me together with bones and sinews. You have granted me life and steadfast love. And your care has preserved me. We're made in God's image, we are in him. We point to another reality. The second point is that we're in community. Let us make man in our image. Bearing God's image is done in community with God and then worked out with one another. See, we're designed for relationship. My humanity, my personhood, doesn't actually come from my ability to think or to reason. I think, therefore I am. But from the biblical understanding of fact that I am known and loved, A, by God, and secondly, by others. So honestly, that's why rejection is probably so painful. If some of you experience rejection, is why is it so painful? Because we are created to be in communion with others. If I've been rejected, for example, by a birth parent, or if they've come to me and said, you were an accident, you were unplanned, you were unwanted, I did not want this pregnancy, Is that person still a person? See, uh, a 40-something-year-old lady came, spoke to me at the end, a couple of weeks back. And she said all of her life, her mum has told her that she has ruined her life. As a 16-year-old, she ended up sleeping with a married man. The condom failed. She ended up pregnant. And as a result of that, her then-daughter, who was born, ruined her life. She's lived with that 40 odd years. I am still a person because my identity rests on the foundation that God called me into existence and continues to know me and continues to love me. For a 46 year old lady hearing that, probably for the first time, a light went on. She was not unplanned. She was not unwanted. She was not a mistake. If that is true, that's huge implications because people want to draw a line and say a fetus is not a baby. They're trying to define my personhood by my ability to be independent, to live outside of my mother, or by my cognitive ability to think. Where biblically, my personhood is defined by being in communion with God and in communion with others. See, the defining characteristic of human, uh, humanity, what it is to be a person, what defines what it is to be a person is not so much in our ability to think, but in the web of relationships into which we are created as person in community. 
So therefore, the disabled child has no less the ability to be in communion with God, made in his image, and no less the ability to be born into community with others is no less a person. And the parent's ability to care for that disabled child, to love and to protect that child, is demonstrating the intrinsic value of that child as a person because they're equally made in the image of God. It's not based on ability. It's based that they're made in the image of God. Why is that important? Third reason that we're in family. Genesis chapter 5 said this. When Adam was 130 years old, he had a son who was just like him. <laughs> His very spirit and image, and he named him Seth. I have a son. He's 19. And he tries to deny it, but he can't deny it that he's my son. There's no hiding it. In looks and personality and footballing ability. Each. Thank you. The older I get, the better I was. Okay. See, there's characteristics and mannerisms and personality that he carries that are just like me. See, our children carry our DNA. Well, at least 50% of it. But it also works the other way around. However much I deny it, I'm his dad. Even if I try to deny it, there's no hiding it. He's my son. I'm his dad. There's only two people on earth who can say that. He's one of them. So when there's this great long list, which was tracing back when Jesus was born, and it traced all of his back, his kind of like genealogy, his, uh, <coughs> you know, the, the family tree. Says this, a huge long list, and it says, son of Kenan, son of Enos, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. If we have children, our DNA passes down to them, but also something of the nature and the character of God, uh, we pass down not just our own DNA, but from this direct family tree, biblically we're passing something of the DNA and the character of who God is. It's the spiritual genetic genome code. Now, we're not fully passing that down. In part, there's only one person who carries the full DNA of God, and his name Jesus. But every child carries something of the maker. But it also works the other way around. Not only do we carry something of God in us that we pass on to the next generation, if we trace it all the way back, it makes him our heavenly father. Amazing to think that however many generations from that day to this day, not only God's image is found within us and the next generation, but our identity is ultimately found in him. Now, through Jesus, we can come to know him as our heavenly father. Knowing God as our father is God's intended plan. We are in him. We are in community. We're in family. And we are in valuable. If it's true that each human life carries something of divine nature, then it follows that each human life has incredible dignity, immeasurable value. If it's not possible to calculate the value of human life in material terms or compare one life with another, each individual becomes a unique masterclass in God's creation. We often define a person's value by the way they function and how well they function, but does that mean that someone with Alzheimer's is no longer got any value? Or the fetus 
or the embryo, the life in the womb, is that make it any less valuable than the baby outside the womb? See, biblically, our dignity is not based on what we can do, how well we function, but in what we are and who we are. Carrier, the image bearer, child of the father. You may have missed it in all the business of news in recent weeks, but there's been another royal baby, baby in Charlotte. Baby Charlotte, Will and Kate, uh, round-the-clock care and attention, I'm sure. Uh, Charlotte will lack nothing in life, I am sure. Why? Because she was born into the right family. She's done nothing to deserve that status. It's all by virtue of her dad. See, people do not need to earn the right to be treated well. We inherit the right by virtue of being born children of the king. All equally valuable because of our creation status. Being made in God's image. Why is that so important? Because we are in him, intrinsically linked with him. Not independently beings living for ourselves. We are in community, designed to be in relationship with him. We are in family, not only carriers of the image, but he's our heavenly father. We are invaluable as carriers of divine nature, incredible dignity and status. Not because of what we've done, but because simply of who we are born of the king. If this is true, then we shouldn't define personhood by the ability to survive outside the womb at 24 weeks or when they're able to function with cognitive reasoning and ability. But we should be defining personhood biblically by our status as children of God who bear his image. And when does that happen? Not at birth. We're carriers of God's DNA at conception. That status is equally true for every embryo with a disability, every embryo with circumstances that aren't right or convenient, every embryo that is produced in the process of IVF because every embryo has been knitted together by God, a master class in design, even the unplanned and even the unwelcomed ones. Will you please welcome my wife, Linda Marsh, who's going to finish off the talk. Thank you. Okay, so we're looking at um, how do we respond. I mean, it's a massive topic, isn't it? And I think even now we, we look back and think, you know, we're only really just scratching at the surface. Um, but we're looking at how do we respond as Christians, first of all, as individuals. And we think, first of all, I in wonder. Uh, let us not lose the sense of wonder of creation when two become three. I mean, so we're looking at what, how does that even happen? We're not going to go into biology, biologically how that happens. I'm sure you know. But let's look at the stages of what happens. It, at three weeks, we look at a fertilized egg where the single cell starts its journey into the womb. It becomes a 100-cell embryo on arrival. At four weeks, it's the size of a poppy seed, absolutely tiny. But the embryo, even then, divides into three layers, has organs, tissues, and that heart begins to appear. Neurotube starts to form the brain and spinal tube. At five weeks, it's two and a half millimeters. The heart starts to divide into chambers. Kidneys and liver start growing along with arms and legs. At six weeks, the heart is now beating at 150 beats per minute, and sometimes this can be seen on the ultrasound. Dark spots for eyes, dimples for ears, opening for nostrils. At seven weeks, it's still only one centimetre, but all internal organs in major development, mouth, lips, inner ear, skin, veins, all visible. 
eight weeks, all organs beginning to function, eyelids in place, hands and feet almost perfectly formed. At nine weeks, bending of the fingers, fingernails are forming, mouth can open, sucking thumb, taste buds in place. At 10 weeks, face frowns, mouth swallows, hair grows, kidney, intestines, brain, lungs, fully functioning. 11 weeks, four centimeters, about like that. Clear facial exp expressions, kicking and stretching. At 12 weeks, now the fetus is fully formed. Everything is in place. After just three months, all major work is done. Somehow, instructions have been given to the fetus on how everything fits together and grows. Absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible. Knitted together in a mother's room. You can start to picture how that happens. I don't know whether I've seen many babies around this morning, and, and uh, I'm sure people come running into church and show you the, the three-month scan and the ultrasound, and you look at it, and to me, it just looks like a blob and a smudge. Sorry, but it does, unless it's yours. And then they start looking at, well, can't you see the arms? Can't you see the skull? Can't you see the spine? Can't you see? It's all there perfectly formed absolutely incredible so let's not first of all lose the sense of wonder of creation and then secondly how do we respond out of respect people carry the image of god therefore treat others as god treats us with love and grace and compassion um, and this includes, isn't it, the weak, the vulnerable, Graham's already mentioned this, the disabled, those perhaps with dementia, they don't suddenly become non-persons just because people don't function exactly how we think they should function. We have dignity and status not because of what we do or how we perform, but because of who we are. Everyone has the ability to enrich our lives. Who here knows um, Steve and Anne Blaber with Joel? Half of you probably do. They're, um, they're leaders down in the Hamden Park site. Joel Blaber is a 26-year-old uh, guy. He has Down syndrome. And uh, our own Prime Minister had the privilege of meeting Joel Blaber uh, about, well, just before, actually, the, the results. And uh, we actually think that uh, it is because of this amazing encounter that there's this huge swing to the, to the right in that week. Because there's no other reason, was there? except for meeting him. But he, Joel enriches many people's lives, even our Prime Minister. You know, he, he, he's not a non-person. He's not to be treated with any less respect. And I'm sure all of us, as I'm speaking, are thinking of people now that, that have some form of disability or, or difficulty, and you think, actually, it doesn't make them any less a person. Am I cracking quite a lot here? Like that. Shall I take it off? I'm sure you can hear me anyway. I didn't know, it's just me. But uh, there's, there's kind of no other explanation that, that or reason people shouldn't be treated with any less respect. I'm sure we all agree with that. Uh, thirdly, we need to be people who have empathy. And, uh, you know, we are, as Grandma said, we are people that haven't been born as individuals to live in our own individualistic, you know, separate lives. We're people to be working and living together in community, within family. And because of that, we then tend to feel people's feelings as well, don't we? Whatever, it might be the joy and it might be sadness. There have been many people even sitting here today who would have experienced the heartache perhaps of, of miscarriages or people perhaps who are un unable to have children um, or have had disability. And most of us would be touched in on people like that. 
And I think that it's important for us to be able to have empathy and understand and to share our love and compassion. So respect, empathy, wonder, and fourthly, really, protection a key area that we're going to be looking at in a bit more detail in a moment, that each life, as Graham says, carries the image of God. Each life is special, sacred. In evolution, it says it's the survival of the fittest, isn't it? Whereas in Christianity, it's turned on its head, and so we need to look after the weak. We need to look after the vulnerable. It's not about the get bigger and stronger. It's actually looking to care and support those who can't care and support for themselves. To destroy or devalue human life is destroying and devaluing God's masterpiece. So we must do all we can to safeguard and defend and protect. So our response as individuals, as Christians, we'd say, is to remember the wonder of creation, respect each individual, show empathy and love and come alongside people, and also protection. But sadly, as we all know, not all babies have been or will be protected. Um, there have been m obviously millions of, of, of unborn children who have uh, lost their lives in the womb. And uh, we need to be aware of that and not just think it's something out there. It's something very much real that we as individuals will be facing on a daily or weekly basis. So how can we respond as a church uh, not just as individuals. I had a, a single lady come to me just a few weeks ago. I asked if I could share this story, and she was fine. But she said that um, she was single, and she found out she was pregnant. And uh, she was really upset, really frightened. And she said, look, Belinda, I just can't have this baby. Um, I, I, can't be, I won't be able to cope. I'm not in a relationship. Um, I don't have the money financially. I, I don't have anywhere to live. I haven't got the security. I can't do this. And, and also, what would people think? And she meant, what would we think? She wasn't talking about the outside world. She said, what would the church think? And I found this hugely provoking. I think, actually, you, it, this isn't something that we need to think of as a theory. This is a reality now of what's happening within our own community. And we need to look at how practically do we respond. I'd say, firstly, with compassion. You know, we, we're a caring community. I know that this one is a caring community and offer love and support and forgiveness. Not raised eyebrows and, and wagging finger, but open arms to offer love. And uh, to provide practical help, care for the mum and the dad. You know, it's scary and um, you can feel very alone. So, and there may be financial uh, implications, so financially be prepared to, to help and care. Open up our homes, offer friendship and support, welcome people in. And uh, grandparents, I don't know about you, but grandparents are amazing. They just sweep in, they babysit free of charge, they look after your kids. I'm looking at you because your grandparents do a lot, don't they? Jane's probably out there now. And you think, actually, they're brilliant. They never ask for anything. It's unconditional. Oh, and of course, Tony as well. Sorry, sorry. Granddad. Grandma's out there. Oh, yes, right. I'm sure granddad does a lot of help. But they swoop in, they care, they support, they don't ask for any charge. They treat you, they lavish gifts on you and your kids, and it's wonderful. Not everybody's going to have grandparents. Actually, as a church community, we can also be the grandparent figures who are actually lavishing love and, and uh, unconditional love and commitment and babysitting and stuff like that. We need to be practical in this as well, not just theory, not just talking it out, not just a hug on a Sunday, but real community. 
and um, also to provide alternatives. A huge, huge challenge to some people who say they can't actually handle a baby at the moment. And uh, so there's fostering opportunities that maybe months or years down the road they might better have the child back. But there's offering fostering um, opportunities as well, as well and adoption opportunities. Now, we don't want to take this lightly. Someone said to Graham after we said this in Eastbourne, well, you can't take this thing lightly. You can't just encourage people to go and foster and adopt. We're not saying that at all. But God knows, and you know, if God is speaking to your heart, you will know that. You will know whether this is something you want to look into and research and, and think, is this an area that God wants me to serve in? It's not for everybody. But our goal, as Graham said, is, trying, is not to make abortion illegal. It's to make it unthinkable because the alternatives are so much better. We also know that this morning that there's a response for the individual. There's a response for the church, but there'll be other people um, who will be responding even here and now, I'd imagine, in a very different way. Uh, there may well be people here in this room who have felt the heartache of, of the past pain of decisions, past regrets. Um, you may have been directly or indirectly involved in ending a pregnancy. And the more that Graham and I have spoken, the more that you've felt the pain and the angst about this. There may be other people here who um, are pregnant right now and thinking, I'm not too sure whether I'm excited about it. Or in months or years to come, you might find yourself in a situation where you're thinking, I don't know about this. This isn't what I planned. Let's just watch um, a story of a good friend of mine. It's um, uh, narrated and acted by actors. It, it's a l true story, but it's not the actual person who's going to be acting it. So I don't know whether it's lined up I met my boyfriend at 18 in my final year at Sixth Form College. I fell deeply in love with him. I was all set to go to America for a gap year before going to university. We were using contraception but it failed, so I took the morning after pill and then I discovered I was pregnant. I was advised to have an abortion because there was the possibility the child might be born with deformities because of the chemicals in the pill. When I told my boyfriend I was pregnant, he said that if I had the baby, he would have nothing to do with me ever again and would not support us. He gave me the money to have the abortion. I made the decision. My friend took me to the clinic in the middle of nowhere and dropped me off. I kept thinking, but I'm pregnant, I'm pregnant. I was very confused and numb. As I took the train home, I cried and knew I had to hide this dark secret from everyone. I had to grieve the loss of our seven-week-old baby silently, bury it deep within and carry on as if nothing had happened. It was the worst day of my life. I had lost our baby, but it was me who had made it happen. And then came the shame, guilt and depression. Years on, my views have drastically changed. I would say please look for any alternative. The emotional fallout and brokenness can be so very difficult to deal with. You are not able to grieve and you are not supposed to have guilt or shame or sadness because it was you who made the decision. But having the abortion has affected every area of my life. It left me disconnected from people. I'd push people away, never trusting anyone. I rejected them before they had the opportunity to reject me, just like I had rejected my baby. But becoming a Christian has changed me. I started to understand that God was the creator of all things, including my baby. God was putting together an amazing life, and I had to accept that I had taken this life away. Becoming a Christian helped me to accept this. It helped me to understand why I felt such sadness and anger. I said sorry to God, 
And in that moment, I was released from the biggest torment of not being able to forgive myself. Jesus, by his enormous grace, had forgiven me. I was free. And now, I'm happily married to a man who knows my secrets and I know who loves me. How do I feel when I see other children? I marvel at them. I see God's creation. My heart delights in them. And I know that he is looking after my baby. And one day, I will meet my child. Well, it's quite a moving video, isn't it? It's um, difficult to quite know how to respond. Uh, but for me, obviously, I know the lady and I know that she's living in the freedom um, of hope and forgiveness. And she knows that there's life. In fact, I, when I spoke, she was sitting on the second row and she was like cheering us on, going, this, she was just wanting people to hear her story. And uh, there are those who feel the pain uh, of ending a pregnancy. And we, more than anything, I think this morning, we want you to hear the heart of um, what we're saying. That actually, we have a loving, heavenly Father who is here to forgive and to embrace. And, and Jesus um, of wanted us to grasp this and and he told stories often to make this clear and one of the uh, most famous stories is the story of the prodigal son isn't it and most of you will know this but those of you who don't it's basically about a son who is quite arrogant and quite selfish and he wanted his way and he said to his dad look I want my inheritance now and the father it, it said okay son you take it and he went and it brought real shame upon the the father but he let him go he went he lived the high life he he lived the dream what he thought and squandered his money and then when he was had nothing left and he was in pig's wheel he suddenly thought actually I think it's better back with my dad and even the servants are living a better life if I go back I won't go back as his son I will go back and say sorry and actually I would just ask to be his servant and this is the response from the father and this is how Jesus wants us to see our heavenly father but while he was still a long way off his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. He put a robe to cover shame and a ring on to restore his status. You know, I've done this four times. And each time it doesn't get any easier, but I can see the compassion of the father who's not judging the son. He's not even saying, come here a minute I'll tell you a thing or two he has nothing nothing like that he ran he embraced he kissed his son he didn't mention the past he just said come kill the fatted calf we're going to celebrate my son who is gone is now home he welcomed him home he embraced him and you know what that's our heavenly father that's how Jesus wants us to see our heavenly father what we've done whatever we've been through you might be here and you might not be a Christian you might think what on earth are you talking about and I'd say actually this is our God that we're talking about a heavenly father who loves embraces and welcomes us home and that's the same if you've ended a life even in the womb 
And you might be thinking, really, I don't get that. I don't get that. How can I be forgiven? And actually, there is no sin beyond God's grace. There is no limits to his forgiveness and no freedom like the freedom of his forgiveness. And there may be people here who says, I don't relate to, to that, to the determination, but I know there are things in my life that I feel just, just not good. God is a God who loves, embraces, forgives, and welcomes people home. And uh, that's the same for every one of us, whether we've accepted him or yet or not. And he wants two things, really. To accept that when Jesus died on the cross, he took our guilt and shame completely gone. He dealt with that on the cross. And he also wants us to follow it up with right choices. Uh, Jesus came to a lady who had caught her in um, adultery and just said, I don't condemn you, but give up your life of sin. Don't do this anymore. And I think that's what he also asks of us. He says, I don't condemn you. I don't live like that anymore. Live it. There's a new way. There's a better way. Actually, Jesus came to give life and life in all its fullness. There is a different way. There is a better way. So we urge you to protect your child. <laughs> there, as I said, there may be people here who may not be pregnant at the moment, but you may find yourself in that situation. And we're not telling you, honestly, what to do. It might sound like that. We are urging you to, um, to keep your child. But we're opening a dialogue, really, that is rarely opened, particularly in this situation, particularly in the church situation. We're saying we're opening a dialogue. And... Um, I will mention, we, I spoke, we spoke about this a couple of weeks ago at Hamden Park. At the end, I had a lady come to me who was in her early 60s. She sat down and she said, I just want to share that when I was 17, I did have um, a termination. And she still felt the pain and the loss. And um, although society says you shouldn't, or society says you do whatever you want, it's intrinsic. Even if no one knows, you do feel the loss and the regret and the pain. And we prayed, and I know that we will see her regularly to see her through this, because God wants her in freedom. Now, I then went to the back of the hall, was just leaving, and another lady, a similar age, came to me, very similar age, just early 60s, and said, Blinda, I want to have a chat with you. When I was 17, almost identical story, um, I found out I was pregnant and I was unmarried and my heart sank. And then she said, but although it's difficult, we kept the, the baby. I looked at her and I said, how old is the baby now? And she said, he's 44. And I looked at her and I said, do you have any regrets? And her face beamed and said, absolutely not. No regrets. She said it was difficult and she said, I feel for the ladies who are going through this, the young girls, the, the single people who are experiencing the pain and sometimes not single people who are going through the dilemma. I understand that, but there were no regrets. And that was just a couple of weeks ago. I urge you, or we urge you to do all you can to protect your child. And you might say, I th you don't know my circumstances. You're right, but we will support you. We, you, don't, we, you won't be the one facing the humiliation. We understand, but we will support you through that. And you say, I, you, you know, what about the guilt if I have to give up for adoption? We understand that. But honestly, we want to be a community that, that loves, supports, and has compassion and um, imitates the Father's love, really. I just want to say, I know we probably 
way, way, way over time. I'm really sorry about that. But can I just read one story of a friend of ours? Um, because we would say, even if you feel you can't keep your child, we'd encourage you uh, to give your child the opportunity to live and to love and to be accepted. There are many people who do want to adopt children. And we've got a, a story of a really good friend of ours called Jonathan Latoc. And uh, he's, he emailed us this sto- his own story. Very briefly, in 1938, Will and Millie married. Uh, for some reason, Millie was unable to give birth to living babies, had numerous miscarriages and stillbirths. John was born to an underage 15-year-old trainee nurse in Guernsey in 1964. His natural father was a GP. He was put up for adoption. Eleven days later, Will and Millie adopted him. They were 51 at the time. Through them, John came to know Jesus at the age of five. He grew up to be quite like his adopted dad. He was musical like his dad, spoke both English and French like his dad. He even went bored early like his adopted dad. And uh, Will and Millie lived well into their 90s and were blessed with grandchildren they never imagined having. And what became of John? Well, he's now currently the chief minister of Guernsey, the equivalent to our prime minister. It's a great story of hope. And this is due to a brave, brave 15-year-old girl who went ahead with um, having the baby and then went through the pain of adoption. But a great story of life. Um, And we will end there, I think Graham's saying we need to wind up um, and I'll let you hand over. I won't go through my other ten pages. (laughs) There's a second video we'd love to show you. We don't have time. It's available online. It's called Rachel's Story. And uh, Rachel just tells me, please go to view it or even show it as another week. It's just a life story. Because uh, Rachel just tells her story about unable to have children and how she went through the whole process of adoption, and the moment and the day that she met her child for the first time. What we try to do today is touch in on some stuff. We as a church, we want to respond to this biblically. We want people to understand the dignity and the value that they have because simply of who they are, made in the image of God. There's a response from us that we want to be a wide, open, loving, embracing community. So just while we wrap up, perhaps even John and Sarah can just kind of start singing that that song, is that there's a response from us as a church that we want to be embracing, we want to be loving. I think the estimate is that one in three women will have a termination during their life. So understandably, there might well be people here who are in that position. And with every woman, there's a man who's had the impact of that as well. So we want to be a community that genuinely is loving and caring. And sometimes people will say today, is it, you know, I don't know if it's really relevant to me. And of course, this is relevant to all of us. Because this is what it means to be part of a church community. Born in the image of God. Let's do what we can to protect, to support, to embrace, and to support you. Let's just, you guys start singing this song. And then uh, we'll close down.